Friends, let's open our Bibles to ask the Lord to show us His great glory, His majesty. Turn, if you would, to the text, Luke 22. God's glory is on display this morning, and Doug being with us, right? Wow. What a moment. And he mentioned, as I was thinking earlier today, just five weeks ago, where we set aside our worship to pray for him in a special worship service. I see him here this morning. Go God. <laughs> and I'm so thrilled for him. And unless you have been in ICU and you have had people tell you that you probably are not going to make it, and then you've had God's people pray and God raised you up and stood here. <laughs> It's an awesome experience and a testimony to the Lord our God. He is Jehovah Rapha, Lord who heals. We pray for that continued healing in Doug's life. Praise God. All our days are in his hands, right? They're in his hands. Yesterday, a special day for me. It was my birthday. I'm not depressed, I want you to know. My brother... My brother, he sends the funniest cards. A little tacky at times, but they're funny. <laughs> Not too many years ago, he sent me one with a man sitting in the mall, had cobwebs hanging off of him, and <laughs> caption said, wait for it, wait for it. <laughs> then, turned 55, he sent me a card that had two nickels inside of it, just double nickels. And yesterday, he sent me a message, words to a song, said, now you can get your kicks on Route 66. <laughs> I thought, 66, speech professor and a pastor, they can't count, you know, they may never count. It's a pretty big number, but birthdays are reminders, aren't they? Birthdays, I think, are reminders. They're reminders of a couple of things. They're reminders, first of all, of our destination, if we're believers. They're reminders of our destination and our arrival in heaven. But also birthdays don't just remind us of our destination, also remind us of our termination, and there's a departure date when we will be leaving this earth. And our days remind us that our time on earth is running out. There is ever more sand <laughs> trickling to the bottom of that hourglass than above. We all have the ultimate deadline. Time's running out. But deadlines are good. When you think about it, deadlines are good because deadlines, they help us prioritize our limited amount of time. We don't know the time that we have on this earth, but it is limited. We have time to do everything that God's called us to do, pointed us to do. Deadlines are good. They help us prioritize our time. And deadlines are good also because they help us finish our tasks. 
Deadlines can be annoying, but they are helpful. They help you finish the task. Now, our Lord was very aware of his deadline. He knew exactly how long he had. And he knew exactly what he was headed to Jerusalem to experience and to accomplish. And most of the book of Luke is about that, beginning back in chapter 9 all the way up through where we are this morning in Luke 22. The Lord has been headed toward this destination, this hour. And now he recognizes his time is very short. As a matter of fact, in this passage that we've read this morning, he's just hours from the cross. Just hours from the cross. And what we have this morning also in this text, if you will note it carefully in the Gospel of Luke, it is our Lord's final teaching moments with his disciples before he's arrested, before the events of his crucifixion and then leading to his resurrection. This is his final conversation. Now think about that. His final conversation. And so the Lord is preparing his disciples for the events of that night that are about to take place. But the Lord is also preparing them for the next day and also the days which will come. He's preparing them in this final conversation, final preparation for the work of the kingdom that they're going to be involved in. And so as our Lord has this final conversation that's recorded by Luke, he talks about the kingdom and he talks to them about kingdom contrast. He wants them to hold some things very clear and understand their great contrast, but they're at the heart of his kingdom and serving in his kingdom. So words that we need every day. And friends, because we believe God orders our days, right? This is a word for this moment. This is a word for this moment. God has ordained that you would hear this word at this moment in your life. Now, notice... These things that Jesus contrasted as he prepared his disciples for the kingdom ministry. Notice first of all, Jesus contrasts here the deepest humility and the highest honor. The deepest humility, our deepest humility and our highest honor. Now the disciples are in the midst of communion conflict. Now, that's bad when there's arguing in church, but when there's arguing in the communion service, that's really bad. 
Here's the first communion service. And what's the disciples? What's their big takeaway from this service of communion? Verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, this is the second time Luke has recorded that they had an argument about who was going to have first place. They thought they knew. And for James and John, even their mother got in on it. And now here they are talking about who's going to be most important. They're they're still in the upper room. And they're already arguing about who's most important. In the upper room, they're talking about and arguing about who's going to have the upper place. Well, Jesus makes a little kingdom correction, a little communion correction. Jesus uses a communion a lot to straighten things out. Notice what he says. He said to them, he interrupted their discussion, even though they probably weren't having it out loud, but Jesus didn't need them to have it out loud. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Now what is Jesus teaching here? Notice he's teaching that they are, first of all, to reject the kingdom of the world's definition of greatness. If they are going to be a part of establishing the kingdom, then they have got to completely set aside what power is thought about and how it's defined in the kingdom of the world. He said, that's not the way it's going to be about you. You're not going to strive for your place. It's not going to be about titles. Then secondly, he said, you've got to recognize the kingdom of God has a different definition of greatness. You see, only Jesus can really define greatness. Isn't it amazing? Who we allow to define greatness in our life? Only Jesus can define greatness because, my friends, listen, only God is great. Here's how the Son of God defines greatness. Look at verse 26. He says, Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. Jesus just turns everything upside down, doesn't he? But the reality, he's not turning it upside down. He's turning it right side up. He says, you do not ascend into greatness. Not in my kingdom. He says, you don't ascend into greatness. You descend into greatness. You descend into greatness. By making yourself the servant of others. Interesting, this week I was reading about a missionary in Papua New Guinea. We're going to have our conference here beginning in the next 
two Sundays, part of that, the next two Sundays. And I do hope that you'll register for all those things that's been mentioned. But this missionary in Papua New Guinea was translating the New Testament. And he came to this passage of Scripture and he was trying to translate it in a way that this people group, the Itamul people group, could understand. And in their group, which had a lot of fishing associated with it from canoes, they considered the most important seat to be in the middle of the canoe. And then the next most important seat was in the front or in the bow of the canoe. And then the least important seat was in the stern, the, the back, and that's the one that had to paddle. And the missionary translated the passage this way. If a person wishes to be leader, he should not sit at the middle of the canoe. <laughs> Let him sit at the stern and do everyone's work. Wow. Now, when Jesus says this, I'm afraid that we can think, oh, that, isn't that amazing? Isn't that a nice way of just inspiring us that the person who wants to be a great needs to be the servant? But Jesus wasn't just using verbal terminologies because Jesus, he is greatness, right? He is greatness and he is great in his service. Why did Jesus come to serve? Because of his greatness. We need to remember something, friends. Listen carefully. Greatness is what greatness does. And what greatness does is serve. Greatness is what greatness does. And what greatness does is serve. I want to say to every elder in this church, brothers, greatness is what greatness does. And what greatness does is serve. I want to say to every staff member of this church, greatness is what greatness does. And what greatness does is serve. I want to say to every deacon in this church, Greatness is what greatness does, and what greatness does is serve. And I want to say to every person here, everyone listening, who is a child of God, a co-heir with Christ, destined for heaven, greatness is what greatness does, and what greatness does is serve. Never allow ourselves to go to podcasts or take books off the shelf or read blogs that define greatness in our minds other than this way. Because this is greatness incarnate. Jesus. And he says greatness is this. It serves. You see, humility precedes honor. Humility precedes honor. And what an honor 
this king, and he's the serving king, right? What an honor he says that he will give to his servants. Look at verse 28. You are those, you are those who have stayed with me. And you have been faithful in my trials. And I assigned you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now you talk about honor. Think about what he is talking about. He, he's saying you don't have to fret about being honored. You don't have to fret about what place you're going to be assigned. He says, I am going to assign to you who have been faithful with me. I'm going to assign you the kingdom. <laughs> and, and you are going to have a fellowship with me forever. And you're going to share the stewardship of my kingdom forever. Don't fret and work and worry about being assigned a high place. He says, I've already assigned you the highest place because you've been faithful to me. You will rule and reign over the 12 tribes of Israel. What's, what's he mean by that? The 12 tribes of Israel is just an ex expression. It just means the, the kingdom of God, which includes all the people of God. You're going to be a part of this. When we get to the book of the Revelation, John has a vision. You remember? And in part of the final vision, he sees... The new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Remember this? It's the city of God. And what does he see? He sees a city that has 12 gates. And on the 12 gates are the names of the 12 sons of Israel. And it has 12 foundations. And on those foundations, the names of the 12 apostles. What, is, what does this city of God represent? What does it mean? It means all the people of God, Old Covenant, New Covenant, they, through Christ, are His people. And they will have stewardship of the kingdom, just as Adam and Eve had stewardship of the first creation. God's people will have stewardship of the new creation. Just as Adam and Eve had fellowship to Eat in the presence of the Lord. Jesus says, you, my people, will eat with me and fellowship with me in my presence in the kingdom. Wow. That sort of takes away all that urgency to battle for position. Can you, can you beat that? Humility precedes honor. But now notice this. Brothers and sisters, here's the next thing. Humility not only precedes honor, humility provides protection. And that's the second contrast I want you to see here quickly. Our Lord contrasts in this conversation our diabolical enemy and our dearest friend. 
We have a diabolical enemy. And we have a dearest friend. Now, who's this diabolical enemy? He's Satan. He's the adversary. Here, Jesus says Satan is prowling. And he turns to Peter. And what does he say to Peter, the leader of the apostles? Verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now you can hear the tenderness in the Lord's voice, can't you? Simon, Simon. But you can also hear the truthfulness because notice he doesn't call him Peter. He calls him Simon. Why? Because he's talking like the old guy. He's involved in this discussion about who's going to be greatest. The Lord knows his heart. And he gives him this personal message. But now I want you to notice something. It doesn't come across in the English here, but it's very important. When he says that, that Satan has desired that he might sift you like wheat, that word you there is plural. So he's, he's talking to Simon, but he's also talking to all the disciples. He wants them all to hear what he's saying. And so as he speaks to Simon, he's not just speaking personally, he's speaking to them corporately. And friends, he's not just speaking to Simon historically, he's speaking to us right now. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now notice Satan's prowling. And here we have something very interesting. We have Satan's petition. Satan has demanded, or the idea is he has requested officially that he might have you. To sift you like wheat. Now we're not, many of us, familiar with that. But in that time when sifting of wheat, they understood that. It, number one, it would be like threshing the wheat and throwing the, 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 all of it up in the air. And the wind blowing the chaff away. And then before they could use the, the wheat, they had to put it through a sifting process. So that all of the rest of the chaff and probably a few bugs as well get taken out. He says, Simon, that's what Satan has demanded to do, to sift you like wheat. What's he saying? The idea here, Satan is after you. Now, friends, what we know, the disciples didn't know. Satan had already gotten one of the apostles. You remember last week from the message? Satan entered Judas. He's gotten one of the apostles. He hates them all. And he especially hates Peter, who he knows to be the leader. Now, there's a couple of things I want us to make sure we understand here. First of all, while Satan cannot possess one of the Lord's true followers, he can oppress the followers of the Lord. He can do that. 
But there's something else I want you to make sure you understand. When it says here that Satan has demanded or he's, he's re- requested official permission that he might sift you like wheat. What that tells us is that while Satan is powerful, he's not all powerful. He's not all powerful. That This should remind us of the story of Job. Do you remember that story in the Old Testament? Where there was this true follower of the Lord. And Satan requested officially, he demanded the opportunity to attack Job. Did it twice. God granted him limited permission. Now friends, there is some great, great comfort in that. Listen carefully. We have a diabolical foe, the devil. But he's a chained devil. He's a chained devil. He is under the sovereign control of almighty God. And sometimes, many times, God uses the old devil and his attacks, which are always wicked, but he causes even the, the wrath of the devil to accomplish his purposes. And the cross is the greatest example of that. The most diabolical crime has ever been committed was the murder of the Son of God, deicide. But God sovereignly controlled the wickedness of men, wickedness of the plotting of demonic forces to bring salvation through His Son. Amen. There's an awesome, awesome truth here. Don't miss it. You do have a diabolical enemy. But you have the dearest friend. Right? Because what did the Lord say? Look at verse 32. But I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. Satan has demanded you. And the idea here is he has made a formal request and it's been permitted. Within God's sovereign control, you are going to be so attacked by the enemy, but I have prayed for you. I have prayed that your faith will not fail. I have prayed, and when you are turned around, When you're turned, strengthen your brothers. You know, there's something stronger, friends, than Satan's oppression. You know what it is? The Savior's intercession. There is nothing as powerful as the prayers of our Savior. It's so beautiful, isn't it? I know what you're going to do, Peter. I know what's about to happen. I know. But I've prayed for you. 
And something's going to be accomplished in you that's going to allow you to strengthen others. That's the Savior's promise. What's Peter's problem? How does Peter respond? Does Peter respond, thank you, Lord, I know how weak I am. Can't tell you how much I appreciate those prayers. Not hardly. What's Peter's problem? Peter's problem is Simon. Peter's problem is his Simon spirit that's still with him. Verse 33, here's his spirit speaking. Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. What are you saying? I'm willing and I, I will do anything. I'll give my life. The Savior's sober prophecy, verse 34. Will you give your life? Will you go to prison? And the Lord knows, yes, someday you will. Because I've prayed for you. But let me tell you what's going to happen this night. Verse 34. Before the rooster crows. The rooster will not crow this day until you have denied three times that you even know me. You know, there's a lesson here. Came back to me this week. When I was a little boy, I don't know if some of you, this game's still around. We used to play a game called Simon Says. You Remember that? Simon says, and you do it real fast, and then you would move before Simon says, and then you're out. Friends, I want to tell you something. Beware of Simon says. It's dangerous. Listen to what Simon says. I will never, never, never do that. Beware of Simon says. Beware of ever saying that. Because my friend, apart from the grace of God and walking in fellowship with Him, we are capable of anything. Beware of that spirit that says, I will never. We need to be wise. Friends, listen, this is not a game that we're involved in. And you're not a fan. This is not a game. We're not fans. This is a battle. And we're soldiers. And we're on a mission. And we have a master. And that's the third contrast I want you to see very quickly. He says to his disciples, turning to them now, about... Mission readiness and his resolve. Our mission's readiness and our master's resolve. Here are these two contrasts. Verse 35 and 36. Here's our 
Mission readiness. Here's how we should be ready. The Lord said this. When I sent you out, verse 35, with no bunny bag or no knapsack or sandals, did you laugh anything? And they said nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Now this is interesting. We need to make sure we understand it. You see, the, Luke has recorded there's been two other mission trips. Do you remember this? There's the mission trip of chapter 9 where the 12, 12 apostles went out on a mission trip and came back. And then we're told in chapter 10 of a mission trip where 72 went out and came back. And on that trip, he told those disciples, don't take anything with you. Go to a village. Somebody receives you. Stay there. Share the good news of the kingdom. If they won't receive you, just keep on going to the next village. Everything will be taken care of. That was the first mission trip. But now, he tells his disciples, make sure you got a money bag. Make sure you got your knapsack, your backpack. And if you don't have a sword, sell something and get a sword. Now, what in the world's going on here? Well, here's part of it. Before this, when they had gone on their mission trips, they sort of were going in friendly area. Uh, they, they were on Jesus' team and they sort of had home court advantage, if you understand. Home field advantage, especially around Galilee. But now... Before long, they're going to be sent out on a mission. And it's going to be opposed. And it's going to be an enemy territory. And it's going to be around the world where there's going to be incredible opposition to the message. And Jesus says these words. Make sure, make sure you have these things. Now... This passage, my friends, has been totally missed and totally misused at various times. The first thing here, this passage has been totally missed by some. <laughs> because if you'd listen to some today, you wouldn't even think there was such a thing as a challenging mission. I mean, hey, you know. It's just a party agenda we have as believers. We're, we're part of the party. Let's just hang out. Let's hang out. And you know, Jesus loves a great party. Don't get, don't get so stressed out. Take it a day at a time. Go with the flow, bro. That attitude is actually used in Christian circles. People are encouraged to just take life as some kind of party with no need to exert yourself and work and labor. Doesn't sound like what Jesus was saying. 
But this has also been totally misinterpreted by some, by some today. They've taken this idea, buy a sword. We got a couple of them, Lord. This has been misused. It's been misused in the most elite and highest of religious circles, even among the popes. Pope Boniface VIII, back in 1302, used this passage to tell Christendom that the Pope had the two swords. He had the authority over secular power, and he had authority over ecclesiastical power. All the power was vested in Rome and the vicar of Christ. Totally, totally misinterpreting. But it's also been misinterpreted to this very day in our culture. It's like this. You've got to do battle with the enemy. Well, that's where it gets a little, little challenging. Who's the enemy? You've got to do, do battle with the enemy. You've got to be a warrior, man. You've got to be a warrior. You've got to have a, the gospel gun, and you've got to have a loaded gun. And the only way either one's coming out of either my hands is when they pry back my dead finger. That is completely and utterly wrong. Look at verse 51, just a few hours later, when they picked up the sword to try to attack the Roman or the Jewish guards. And Peter cut one of their ears off. Why did he cut his ear off? Because he missed. <laughs> He's trying to cut his head off. And what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say when they did that? Verse 51, no more of this. You are not going to accomplish my purposes in violent means. What's Jesus saying then? What's this mean then? He's using an analogy. This is not a vacation. This is not just hanging out. This is a mission. You are my people. You are going against the gates of hell. And it will, they will not be able to stand against you. But you've got to go in my name. And you've got to go as in my humility. And you've got to go in prayer. And you've got to go in relying on me. And you're not advancing my kingdom by some kind of military force. You're going to advance it with prayer and love and the gospel. That's what he's saying. You've got to be ready. Get serious. Just like I have gotten myself ready. I'm resolved. Listen to what he says. Verse 37. Or rather, verse 37, yes. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. What does he do? Jesus quotes Isaiah 53. And he was numbered with the transgressors. 
For what is written about me has its fulfillment, meaning right now. Right now, we're headed to the Mount of Olives. I'm going to the Garden of Gethsemane. And right now, in this city, it started. And it's all fulfilled in me. And for this cause, I came into this world. It's what he's saying. You have got to have the same resolve. You've got to be ready. <laughs> what did Jesus' disciples say? <sighs> Verse 38, they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And what did Jesus say? It's enough. You know, some people have read that thinking, well, you know, with Jesus, two swords will get the job done. You know, you know what? No. This is being said with a sigh. Jesus' final teaching to his disciples is ending with a sigh. And he says, enough. Enough of this conversation. Just don't get it. And he headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. Friends, Jesus never had the dream team. No. It's just us. The bad news bears. But I want you to see something about his words. His words are our hope. Because I'm speaking here to people, speaking to myself. We recognize how often we blow it, how far we are from being like this, how often we assert ourselves. We don't descend to serve we assert we're so confident Jesus said this is fulfilled in me what is fulfilled in me numbered among the transgressors he was numbered among the transgressors that is the world's hatred for the world, Jesus is a problem. He is the problem. He, he's numbered among the transgressors. He was treated as a problem. He was treated as a sinner. But think of it differently, brothers and sisters. Jesus was identified as a sinner and they didn't understand that that's exactly what he came to do, identify himself with sinners. He came for sinners. And on the cross, he identified with us so much that he took our sins 
and took our failures and took our weakness and took our pride. He identified with us. That's our hope. It's my hope today. I hope it's your hope. Is not that Jesus identifies with good people. He identifies with bad people. He identifies with total mess-ups. That's our hope. That he's a friend of sinners. And friend, I'm speaking to you today. You've messed up maybe. But you got a friend. Who did something about your mess-up. He paid for it in full. Some of you denied him. Even as Peter did. But you know what? He's prayed for you. What's our hope? What's the hope that we can share with anybody? Our God identifies with sinners. He is holy and harmless. Holy, holy, holy God. But he comes and he identifies with the lowest of sinners to help them. Not when they're at their best, but to help them when they're at their worst. Praise God for a Savior like that. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Dear friend, thank you for your attention this morning. I pray that we will take to heart this this word that the Lord has for us. I pray that we'll not just quickly turn it off. Remember what I said, it's the word for this moment. What a word of hope we have in Christ who identifies with us and he prays for us and he says yes through me you can serve in love you can fulfill your potential by serving me and serving your fellow man I will assign you a place in the kingdom I've paid for you for your sins. I've paid for you, redeemed you, and I'm for you. I'm with you now. I will turn you around and you will help others. Lord, We can't imagine a Savior such as you. We confess our utter, utter weakness. And we confess your glorious strength. And we truly need you to help us embrace that when we are weak, we can be strong in your grace. And we can be on mission because you, Lord, fulfilled your mission, and you're living your mission in us.
and you're praying for us. Give us that courage and dependence. In Jesus' name, God's people said, Amen. Amen.